Welcome to a dialogue on accountability in the digital age. A dialogue with representatives of a global, multi-stakeholder community. I'm your host, Fritz Bussemaker, and today I'm delighted and privileged to have a conversation with Paul Nemitz. Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you. Allow me to introduce Paul. He's the principal advisor on justice policy at the European Commission, a member of the German Data Ethics Commission, a visiting professor of law, and also the co-author of the book Princip Mensch, uh, Machtfreiheit und Demokratie im uh, Zeitalter der Künstlichen Intelligenz, translated English, uh, The Human Principle, Power, Freedom and Democracy in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. We educated as a lawyer both in Germany, where he's from, and in the US. So again, Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you, Fritz. Uh, let me start, kick off our discussion with uh, actually a statement uh, about the book, Princip Mensch, uh, technology without democracy and rule of law cannot work. And this book uh, shows a clear path forward to allow us to integrate both tech and in our social fabric. So uh, first of all, that statement, could you expand on that statement? It cannot work. Well, um, of course, the relationship uh, between um, economic power and uh, technology is, is a long one. And Hans Jonas, uh, the, the philosopher who immigrated from Nazi Germany to the United States and then worked in New York in the New School of Social Research, he already said in his 1979 book, The Princip Verantwortung, The Principle of Responsibility, where he invented the precautionary principle that the combined power of capitalism plus technology brushes away everything else, including you know, democracy and, and, and fundamental rights. And um, so I do believe that <clears throat> we, if we want to preserve our way of life in terms of both individual self-determination, but also collective self-determination in the form of democracies, plural, mm -hmm. um, then um, uh, we need to establish uh, a relationship between uh, the markets, uh, technology and democracy, which um, you know, secures also in the age of artificial intelligence and uh, let's say rising power of tech, uh, the future of democracy. And uh, this is a subject which in literature has been already discussed uh, since the 90s and um, I think um, in, in my book, we have made an effort to, to research all this. The theme is that the control of technological power in the age of technology becomes a core task of democracy. Um, so democracy does not only domesticate political and economical power, the classic tasks, mm -hmm. but the new task is to also control technological power and um, so, well, what does this mean for working together? It means that it is very, very important that the technical intelligentsia, namely um, uh, the engineers, the people who invent technologies, the programmers, uh, you know, the computer scientists and so on, um, that they engage uh, with, with democracy in at least two ways. First, that they provide their knowledge and their technological imagination, what would be possible with this or that new technology in society and as regards individuals. 
Um, and second, you know, that they also engage in a more formal way with the formal um, 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 fora of democratic decision-making. I'm worried about the fact that there are less and less engineers, and by the way, also less and less physics and you know, math and, and chemistry professors and, and knowledgeable people about technological things in parliaments and in political parties, both in the American Congress and in the German Bundestag. And you find that in my book, the number of people with this type of, let's say, science and technology knowledge has gone down in the last 20 years drastically. And as I would say, um, we need to encourage uh, people with this knowledge to come back and we need to engage with each other. Okay, so that's part of, is that part, is that the solution or is that part of the solution? So if I hear you correctly, uh, engineers have to get back, uh, uh, more engineers have to get back in, uh, in government, in policymaking, uh, or does it also mean we have to train policymakers to understand technology? Obviously, obviously. Uh, I have just this afternoon discussed um, uh, with the key author of a new report on artificial intelligence in the European Parliament. There is a, a so-called intergroup on artificial intelligence in the European Parliament. They have just presented their report. Um, so I'm very happy. I think uh, you know the legislator, which is most engaged uh, in uh, making rules for the technological world, you know, with the Digital Services Act, the Digital Markets Act, the AI Act, the Data Act, the Data Governance Act, also already GDPR at the time and the Net Neutrality Directive is certainly the European Parliament. And by the way, I would say the European Court of Justice is probably the court in the world which structures most through its very knowledgeable jurisprudence, the digital space. So I think you are absolutely right. What I'm saying is we need um, interdisciplinary conversation which starts in education and in academia among students among professors and then which continues into society my experience is that it is actually not so easy to understand each other i have um, participated both in the work of the um, ai high level group that was more let's say accompanying it from inside the commission the european ai high level group i was member myself full member of the german data ethics uh, commission which has presented its report by now. And both of these commissions were interdisciplinary. And in the beginning, and I would say even until the end, you know, one of the key issues was common concepts and how do we understand each other. But there is another element that me, sorry to be a little bit long on this. No, that's fine. No, I got some questions for you, but they'll come later. We live in a time of crisis of democracy. And I think we have to win the technical intelligentsia to engage in the democracy in many different ways, including by shaping technology for democracy, you know, democracy built in, fundamental rights built in. I think probably we need a class of engineers and for that the studies have to be restructured. We need some engineers who are able to assess whether, uh, you know, this or that social network or this or that AI, uh, you know, is actually compatible with our fundamental rights and our uh, working of democracy, because we need people who can bring together the technical knowledge, technical imagination, um, and the knowledge about society and how it functions. You know, because we live in an age in which technology has huge impact on individuals, on how they think, how they decide, how they build their opinions. 
and also on society as a whole. Um, uh, you know, these technologies, they shape our mind, our collective and individual decision-making. Paul, I really applaud the fact that you uh, call upon engineers uh, to take that on board. Uh, 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 you as a lawyer reaching out to uh, engineers. Now, uh, uh, just uh, recently, uh, we had um, the World Engineering Day. And uh, I was asked to chair a panel discussion on AI and ethics. And one of the discussions, uh, I mean, I was uh, came to mind when you, you, you one of your remarks triggered me. Uh, so we see in the engineering world uh, an a need to educate engineers about ethics, that they realize that what they build has impact uh, on society. So they need to take ethics on board. However, uh, the issue was engineers want to be engineers and they're not always interested in the soft skills. So I understand the call to integrate and bring that on board, but how can we get those engineers and the people providing those solutions to um, realize, yes, this is also something which should be part of your uh, curriculum as an engineer? The question of the responsibility of the political responsibility of the engineer for what they built mm -hmm. is one of the core questions of the 20th century. If you read the Adorno uh, text of 19, I think it's 1968 about education after Auschwitz, mm -hmm. he describes a type of technological fetishism with a language, if you read it out, you think it's today, but what he actually describes is the technologists which worked to perfection in building a railway, namely a perfect railway system which led to Auschwitz, but they didn't ask the question, what happens when the railway arrives? And he said, uh, you know, this cannot be repeated again. So I would think, um, it is important that engineers are engineers, but engineers have to take responsibility for what they are building. In particular, when it has huge impacts on the fundamental rights of human beings or on the functioning of democracy. Um, so I would say, um, you know, this history starts in the beginning of the 20th century. It has continued. Um, in our book, for example, we uh, talk about the study of Eugen Kugon, who was a contemporary of Adorno. In 1976, he did a, um, an opinion poll about uh, among 20,000 engineers, together with an engineering association, about the question whether the engineers are ready to take political responsibility. This was the age of atomic power, where, you know, the big discussions of uh, uh, atomic power. And around 70% of the engineers in Germany, at least this was a, a German opinion poll, said, yes, we are ready to take this responsibility. So I'm optimistic about this. I also have worked with the IEEE, for example. Um, I have moderated a group which is called the Transatlantic Reflection Group on uh, the, um, Democracy and the Rule of Law in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, which is a mixed group between engineers and political scientists and lawyers and so on. And I see that there are many engineers who are absolutely ready to uh, engage in this direction. And I see it also at universities and so on, namely to take full responsibility for the impacts 
of their technology. And the word impact, of course, leads us directly to the word impact assessment. We need people who, and I can only repeat this, who have, who are engineers, who have full technical understanding, which I don't have, for example, and who have not only this understanding, but who have the imagination that I would call it the technological in, 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 imagination based on their deep knowledge of how this technology function to understand what can be done with this technology. And you need this technological understanding to know what can be done with it. And then on that basis, these people must also be able to assess what this means. What does it mean for individual freedom? What does it mean for human rights? What does it mean for democracy? And I think people can do this. This can be one person. It can be interdisciplinary groups. And but I would like to, to give you the example of Stuart Russell, for example. Yeah, Stuart okay. Russell is one of the famous uh, professors of AI who has written uh, you know, one of the key teaching books on artificial intelligence. But at the same time, he has written a book which is called Human Compatible, the Problem of Control, where he demonstrates exactly this combined skill, namely the skill of the technologist who understands fully the technology and its potentials, but also the, uh, the skill, let's say, of the educated citizen who is ready to engage for individual rights, for individual freedom, and for democracy. And, um, and I think not every engineer needs to do this. Uh, but in the same way that we say our citizens generally should engage in one way or the other with democracy, I would say engineers should, you know, since they are citizens, they should do it. And they have actually something to give. And this can be done in many different ways. It can be done in trade associations and professional associations. It can be done in their work directly, you know, to say okay, at work, let's do an impact assessment, what this invention means for society and for individuals. But it can also be done, you know, in becoming a member of parliament or being active in a political party and so on. And I see, as you said, Fritz, there are engineering associations which are already uh, um, um, engaging in this direction. And I think that's good. It was actually one of the people from IEEE who talked about uh, AI and ethics, uh, which confirmed that. Uh, so if you look at uh, your book, The Clear Path Forward, uh, all these examples and options, this is for you the way to get there, to integrate tech in our society. Yeah, this is, this is I think, an, um, an essential element, because if it is true, that our uh, society is more and more dominated by technology. And if it is true, for example, that AI will be as uh, uh, omnipresent as electricity and will be you know, taking decisions in key areas of education, of justice, of mobility, of health, uh, uh, of sustainability, and so on, and will also play a role in the political realm, you know, curating the news for us or even writing the news for us, you know, I think then uh, this type of Impact assessment is inevitable, and also we, you know, we need to invest in this capability, in this skill. We 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 need to um, uh, develop this new combined profile of uh, both having technological knowledge and technological imagination on the one hand, and knowledge about society on the other hand. So, and the rules of society and the basic fundamental rights of people. So that we can properly carry out the impact assessment. I would say this is nothing revolutionary because we have seen this before. We have learned 
that we need to do impact assessment for environmental purposes. And a, a breed of engineers has grown who know both about biology and engineering. And, uh, you know, that is something which also didn't exist before. And it has grown, it has become quite a, a big area of, of engineering and, and can be studied. And I hope that um, uh, this new type of combination of societal understanding and engineering uh, will also grow uh, in, in, in faculties, both of engineering and uh, uh, also of social sciences. So this, this reminds me of the T-shaped the, the skills the European Commission talks about. Uh, you have to combine uh, the skills you have in digital technology or AI with a, another skill to make sure that you know how it's going to be used or should be used. Yes, and that's that's of course only one element. Another element which I would stress is, you know, I, I. But for me, the core issue is to make democracy function. So we need the people to engage in democracy, but we need also, of course, democratic process itself to avail itself of uh, its prerogative to look at these technologies and uh, and then to take on the very very difficult task to set the rules. You know, uh, for me, it's fascinating to see that starting with the articles of Mark Zuckerberg in the uh, Washington Post in March 2000 years, uh, two years ago, and now uh, being uh, uh, also coming from Google and, and Microsoft uh, and so on, the call for rules. Um, and why is that so? Because I think- The call for uh, rules, uh, that's actually a nice segue to yeah. um, a comment uh, on your book made by Political the political cost is the book Silicon Valley uh, won't like. Uh, now, I see you laughing. So, yes. uh, well, first of all, uh, have you ever asked political what they meant by that statement? Why are they claiming that? Second question related to that, could it, could this, is this also the book the European Commission likes, does like? Um, well, first of all, this is, of course, a quote from a longer article, uh, yeah. namely a review of the book by Politico at the time. And... Um, of course, the book is very, very critical of the power concentration in the big Silicon Valley companies, uh, you know, the GAFAM, and it's not only Silicon Valley, it's also other locations, and Microsoft, of course, is, is not in Silicon Valley, uh, but GAFAM, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, and others, but these five, I think they, they stand for, for what we wanted to say in this book. They have usurped a lot of power, uh, economic power, no doubt. They are at the top of the American stock exchange, the most valuable companies of the world. They have the most cash to do political lobbying, to buy academics at you know, any university, to be a sponsor and make friends in any conference and so on. You know, I don't have to explain this to you. Um, but they also dominate the infrastructures which um, uh, direct our thinking. They run the internet, the, how it provides content to us through search, through recommendations. Um, if they cash in 80% of the advertisement uh, on the internet, the new advertisement on the internet, which previously was available to the press, the press being the fourth estate, the fourth power in the state, the free press as a critic of government and a critic of power, private and public power, is going down the drain uh, uh, because of these networks. So. Um, um, the book is very, very critical also of the hubris uh, uh, of, of these technology companies, which at a time claimed that, you know, all problems of this world can be solved by technology. 
which of course culminated in this idea that you know Google created a subsidiary called Jigsaw, where you know the world diplomacy problems should be solved. And if you read the book of um, Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, yep. uh, tools know, and weapons. Yeah. You know, it sounds like, um, you know, Microsoft is the better politician and the better American Congress and the better American government all together. And that's, of course, easy to say in the type of Trump, but there is an element of hubris in this. And I think we have to be careful about this. I do not believe, and I think COVID was a good example, that um, we want to live in the world where technology companies make the rules. And I, I also don't believe that it is true, actually, that technology solves all problems of this world. Both the war with Russia now and um, the COVID crisis have shown that what is still key for our good life is that we understand each other and that we give ourselves rules, which we then also obey. You know, think of the rules of wearing a mask and keeping a distance and, you know, all these things in COVID think about the question of whether we make it an obligation to get a vaccination or not this is about rules and of course when we think about russia uh, you know think about the very simple rules that the rule that borders are untouchable and um, you know i would say this i think the companies are learning um, and, and, and they are also seeing that, yes, it was important to have the vaccinations, you know, that's natural science. It was important to have some kind of app, but the most important thing were the rules. And um, I think they are learning at least to sing the song of democracy again. Um, um, but I think we have to have sustained engagement uh, to make sure that it stays this way, because in the ideology, in the California ideology and in the ideology of singularity, there are elements of technological absolutism which come from Silicon Valley, which are not very different from the technological absolutism of the Politburo of the Chinese Communist Party. You know, they both come together at a certain point that technology becomes a, um, a tool for their purposes, and their purposes prime over everything. For the Communist Party, it is to dominate and hurt the people of China like sheep in a total dictatorship. For Silicon Valley, it's maximizing profits. And for that, you know, everything is okay. And, you know, even if we break things and one wonders, you know, what else we are going to break after we have seen what the unregulated internet leads to in terms of hate and violence uh, and so on in the world. So mm, well, I think that, that, you know, speaking about this openly is the part which they won't like. I think uh, in Europe and also in the commission, many people like this book because it showed a way how we can have innovative technology, successful technology growth, and, and at the same time maintain our uh, tried and tested and hard fought for hard fought for uh, uh, freedom and democracy. And I think the new element now, which is not yet uh, very big in the book is of course this, um, the issue of sovereignty. Yeah. And we talk about this in Brussels a lot in terms of technological sovereignty, supply side sovereignty, you know, we need chips and so on. But actually the word sovereignty does not only mean 
let's say, the ability to work without goods and services for others. Sovereignty is about self-determination of people. And it contains these ideas that, after all, you know, we want to self-rule, we want a democracy, and we also want individuals to be free. And for example, you know, to come back to AI, to have the right to ask for reasons. You know, we don't want to live in a world in which we just have to accept AI like in the before the enlightenment, we had to accept what comes from the church because it was unquestionably coming from God. We don't want AI as the new God. We want AI which explains itself and which gives reasons and which we can challenge with a human being behind it who takes responsibility. Well, is that also why uh, maybe I now better understand the quote of you, rather than digitizing democracy, we should democratize digital. That's right. Uh, that's exactly the right uh, way to go. Um, we have to think of the digital as a great tool of productivity and power. And the job of democracy is to share power among people, to make them participate, to allow that power has legitimacy because there are elections in which people decide who will exercise the power and how it will be exercised. And to make this concrete, for the technology, this means for me, we must have the ambition to re-empower societies to have technologies which support democratic process and which empower individuals to play their role as citizens, not only as customers, as citizens. Uh, in society. And this is also where we need engineers, because only the programmers and the engineers can then implement and operationalize the great ideas which may come, you know, from anywhere. Okay. Uh, well, a couple of last questions then, uh, given this. Uh, I'd like to do a reality check and ask you, in your experience uh, working for the European Commission, um, is there enough understanding of the issues you talk about with your colleagues? Yeah, I, I, I would say, you know, I mean, the Commission is a huge body and the European Parliament is also, a, a, it's a big parliament. And what I see is that <clears throat> we have very intense discourses on all these issues and it's a mutual learning process. The Commission, the European Parliament and the European Court of Justice are learning institutions and we are moving with these issues which we are discussing here at the cutting edge, both of technology, natural science, if you think of COVID, yeah. and also social sciences. And, uh, you know, so it needs deliberation. It's not, these are not things which can be solved with a golden bullet and from one day to, to the other. But I would say the European institutions are definitely in terms of the thinking uh, uh, in the lead on all these issues. Good to know. Um, in your in your opinion, what's the biggest threat for accountability in a digital age today? The biggest threat for accountability is uh, probably the idea that uh, technology can become itself uh, an actor for which humans don't have responsibility anymore, either because we create you know, an AI with legal personality. I think that idea is now finished. It, it, was, it was a gag, um, uh, uh, but is, that's not serious because it doesn't solve any problems or because of a runaway technology which gets out of control. 
And this is not only an AI problem, this is also a problem, for example, of bioengineering and so on. So I think these are uh, the two areas where uh, we have to look out. And the third area is the combination of economic power with technological power. I think we have to be careful that our democracies are not overwhelmed by uh, you know, the money, the brightness, the beauty of the Googles of this world who just know it all better because they have the better data, the better search, the better analytics, analytics, and they can make friends with money and have all the great parties in the capitals of this world, and we're all dancing with them. I think there we also have to be careful. That is the type of Washington politics, you know, where nothing gets done in Congress because the parties of Google and Facebook, they're just so great, yeah? And we all want to dance with them. Um, uh, there we have to be careful that democracy is not disabled by very economically and technologically um, powerful uh, corporations. You know, that's the dream of the top manager, that they run the show, including in politics, and that cannot happen. Okay. How can a community like the Institute for Accountability in a Digital Age help here? How can we help you? Yeah, I think uh, the most important thing is that we have public discourses about these issues and that we speak to truth and that we also say the things which may here and there lead to not being invited to the next party of Google and Facebook. You know, that price we have to pay. We have to be ready to talk critically about technological power. Uh, you know, the ability to be critical is key for a citizen in democracy. We need to be critical about our governments. Uh, that's the first purpose, by the way, of fundamental rights to defend against the overreach of government. But we also must be critical about private power concentrations. And, um, and so, you know, as much as I like the idea that we learn to trust uh, AI, and this is, uh, let's say, a key discourse in the debate, uh, we also have to teach our children and exercise ourselves a good sense of awareness and criticism and speak out um, about all the things which are going wrong in these technologies. And uh, I think that, um, you know, that's what democracy is about. And this is also uh, as a feedback, uh, both into the democratic process, you know, where rules are made and where laws enforced, all these functions are very important, but also as a feedback to the companies, I think uh, that is helpful to all. Well, that's the role we definitely want to play, uh, helping to create that awareness, um, pre present solutions, present uh, uh, visions and uh, ideas on how to deal with accountability. Uh, final question. I mean, you just said we, not, we might not be able to uh, be invited at the table from uh, a certain organizations, but who should we invite at the table to have this discussion, uh, to, to look at a solution? Yes, um, I, I think this is um, an issue where we have to realize that the big corporations are already being heard everywhere. I mean, you know, you can see it uh, if they want to have a campaign which goes to the public, they just buy the pages of the newspapers, they do TV advertisements and so on. If they want a debate which is a little bit more scientific, they just buy uh, you know, the professors who write them the right uh, type of expertise, which then is spread uh, and, you know, 
often it's not so clear how the money has been flowing in this or that research institute. I think that's an issue. And when it comes to the political process, you know, they have their offices in the capitals, in not only in Brussels, in Washington, but also in others. So they are being heard. Who is not heard are the many small and medium companies, are the civil society actors. You know, we have one head organization for all civil society and civil rights organizations on the internet in Europe, one, while alone the companies, not to talk about the many trade organizations who represent company interests in Brussels, you know, I mean, you need more than two hands to count them out. And so I think if you want to contribute to a more level playing field of who is heard, um, I think, you know, invite academics who may not be getting money uh, uh, from uh, these companies in their institutes, invite civil society, and by all means, you know, if you want to have a controversial discussion, invite uh, uh, Google, Facebook, and so on. But, and this is very important, don't allow them to say, I'm not coming if this or that person is on the podium. I have seen this very often. They use their convening power. They use their sponsor's power, you know, and some people then are not invited. That should not happen. So, you know, if you invite them or if you need to take sponsor's money, I think you need to have a governance structure in your event, which makes sure that they cannot have an influence on the content of, you know, who is speaking or the content of themes which you are setting uh, in your deliberations. Well, good sound advice. I want to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, your insights, which have been uh, written down in that book. So I'll make sure that we provide the link to the book Prinship Mensch uh, in the dictionary, uh, in the in the the link to the site. Uh, for those who might uh, be asking that question, is the book also available in English? Yeah, we have an English text, but we haven't found a publisher yet. But I'm I'm sure we'll find one one day. Maybe there's going to be one listening today. So, Paul, again, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.